Today's episode of the Body Clock Podcast is brought to you by Dermala. Dermala is a personalized acne treatment kit that fights the cause of acne, not just the symptoms. Acne happens when bad bacteria overpower your good bacteria. Dermala uses the power of your microbiome to strengthen the good bacteria to fight the acne-causing bad bacteria on and in your body. Each kit contains four products formulated to individual needs, an AMPM cleanser, AMPM treatment pads, daily pre- and probiotic mix, and targeted pimple patches for stubborn pimples. The products are made with clean, natural ingredients and a special blend of pre-, pro-, and postbiotics that fight acne from inside out and outside in. The kit is complemented by Dermala Acne Tracker. By tracking the treatment progress with the app, the product formulation is continually optimized based on the treatment results. Take the skin quiz on Dermala.com, get your personalized kit delivered to your door, and start fighting your hashtag FOBO, or your fear of breaking out. That's Dermala.com, D-E-R-M-A-L-A.com. Thanks and hope you enjoy the show. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Body Clock Podcast by O-Waves. Today I'm delighted to be joined by a fellow Brit, Tommy Wood. So um, Tommy is very accomplished. So he's a medically trained doctor and he has a PhD in physiology and neuroscience. And he's been doing postdoc work in Washington. And he's also been affiliated with the University of Cambridge and University of Oxford through his medical studies and studying biochemistry. He's currently the chief scientific officer of Nourish, Balance, Thrive. Um, Tommy is also the president of the Physicians for Ancestral Health. And I hope I haven't forgotten anything there, Tommy, because um, you have done a lot. Um, but I'll let you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about how you've been brought into kind of this emerging field of lifestyle, functional medicine. Sure. So the one thing that we were uh, talking about, one of the ways that um, we've kind of connected was through the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. So I was one of the founding directors um, of that, and I'm, I'm still one of the directors. I'm the I'm the member at large, or the America the Americas representative, American. if you want to want to call it that. Um, so yeah, uh, all of that's ab- absolutely correct. I lived and did most of my training in the UK. Um, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge then did my medical degree at Oxford and I did two years uh, after that work as a junior doctor in London. So I did my um, F1 and F2 years at, St- at Guy's and St. Thomas's. And when that was coming to an end, I was offered a PhD by somebody who I had done some undergraduate work for um, a few years before then. And she'd moved to Oslo in Norway. So um, this is something that I think uh, you and I have in common, which is that when somebody just when somebody gives you a good opportunity and it sounds interesting, you're sort of pretty pretty open to just going for it. So that's what I did. I, I left the formal uh, medical track in the UK, went and did a PhD, and then during my PhD, I met my now wife, who's American, and I moved over here to Seattle in the US. So the the state of Washington rather than the city of Washington. Oh, okay. 
uh, on opposite sides of the country. It's, it's okay. It's, it's really common to get those mixed up. The UK is a lot smaller, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so then, yeah, I worked here as a postdoc uh, for a short period of time. And most of my academic research is in neonatal brain injury or um, starting to move into sort of pediatric and traumatic brain injury, um, which is which sort of uh, intercalates with with some of the the other stuff I've been doing uh, with athletes and, and in, fun in functional medicine. Um, but in December, I was just uh, promoted to a research assistant professor. So I'm technically a, a professor of uh, pediatrics now, which is sort of half of my job. And again, mainly looking at um, researching brain injury and treatments for brain injury. And then the other side of that kind of also developed during my PhD, which was, you know, finally had a little bit of time to sit down at a computer, uh, which you don't as a junior doctor really um and look at pubmed start to research some of the things that i was interested in and i'd been a, a rower as an undergraduate and a, as a medical student and then started uh, coaching athletes and was just very interested in in health and, and lifestyle and performance and so i started to blog about that i started a podcast i got um introduced to a computer scientist named Chris Kelly, who was actually over here in the US already. He's also a Brit who was living and working in California. And we start, and he'd started a company coaching athletes, basically re, um, reviving the health of athletes who had been broken by the standard, uh, standard advice of how to train and how to eat, which is a very, I call it attritional. So it's, it's really great at producing uh, people who then succeed at the Olympics or the World Championships, but about 99.9% .9 of the people who try that completely fail and fall apart. So we've been um, finding ways to figure out what's going on uh, in these guys and then put their health back together. And that basically comes down to all the lifestyle and environmental things that I think we're going to talk about some more. So that's been continuing uh, throughout uh, throughout the last uh, few years. And that's so now that makes about 50% of my job. So I have two, two jobs, one academic one one working with athletes and i also do some some other consulting so i do similar work with uh formula one drivers through a company called hintza um and it sort of allows me to do all the things that i'm interested in both the basic research i'm a, a scientist at heart and then on on the other side i get to work directly with clients or athletes or i can't really call them patients anymore because i'm not technically working as a doctor but i can still use all that medical knowledge and bring that together um and sort of help them uh, perform for as, uh, perform as well as possible for as long as possible. That's usually my goal. Sounds very diversified, but also very interesting. You must be quite busy with all these things going on. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I bet the, the, the problem with having two jobs that you work 50% is basically that you end up with two jobs that you work about 90%. So exactly. <laughs> um, that, has, that has been a struggle. Um, my wife is another academic. She's a professor of chemical engineering at the University of Washington as well. And she's, uh, she also does a whole host of things outside of her, her formal job. So one of, the, one of the things that we're constantly working together at is, is trying to improve our time management, but then also make sure that we're looking after ourselves because... You can, you can push really hard for a few years, but eventually, you know, you have to find something that's more sustainable. Yeah, it catches up with you eventually. It seems like you have academia flowing through your veins. <laughs> yeah. Both my, both my parents were academics, so I, oh, I wow. feel like okay. this is something that was, that was always <laughs> destined to happen, even though I never, I, I, I never planned it that way. I mean, respect to you for kind of taking the opportunity and the PhD at the time, because I know in medical training myself, um, we get told about kind of certain paths and kind of career goals and it's, it's very traditional mm -hmm. and yeah. um, when we're not told to innovate and think outside the box and kind of you know mix our strengths and what we're good at 
with what we're interested in and then pursue that. that that's normally not the opportunity that's available. Right? It's, re it's really funny because, yeah, you're absolutely right. But when I, when I was finishing up my, uh, my foundation training and you have various mentors and colleagues and they're asking about yeah. what you're going to do next. And I was like, oh, I'm going to move to Norway and I'm going to do a PhD. And everybody was like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. And just because nobody ever thought about exactly. taking those kinds of opportunities, like everybody wishes they could have done something like that, mm -hmm. but it just was, was never there as an option. So, yeah. so I think that, and, and, and I also know that there's, there's, there's a huge amount of, or a huge number of junior doctors that are now kind of desperate to do something different or diversify, or it's not that they don't want to be doctors, they don't want to look after patients, but they're sort of, they're desperate for these new opportunities and to, to continue growing and learning. So I, I think there's this huge desire for this kind of thing. It just hasn't really been made available to most people. I think that that's what's going to, going to change in health. And um, looking at it myself being in kind of an innovation program, um, it's changing, but changing slowly. But yeah. I guess being a doctor yourself, obviously, we, we go through such training and it's almost like a conveyor belt, right? Yeah. Um, where you have to tick the boxes, get through. And sometimes you, you think, wait, could I be moving faster, making more of an impact for people, learning more? Like I'm sure through lifestyle medicine, there's a lot of things that I've learned which weren't taught to me in medical school. Um, oh yeah, I mean, most of the things that end up being useful to you in the, in the outside world are things that you have to learn uh, as you go, as you know, like you get dropped into a night shift on your first day as a junior doctor <laughs> and literally nothing you learn in medical school is useful. So actually that, that ability to, um, that ability to, to innovate and, and, and figure things out um, on the go is actually, is actually something that the doctors are really good at. Um, and I remember before I went to medical school, I, uh, a mentor of mine was, we were doing, he, he's a, he's a, he was a professor of pediatrics and he was helping me do some, just some practice interviews for, for, for medical school. And one thing he, he said to me, which really stuck with me, was that the, the training that doctors get means that they should be the ones that do the research and innovate because by the time um, you've figured something out and you know how it works, somebody else can do that, right? So mm. most of the things that doctors do nowadays is very protocol-driven, it's very yes. systematized. And I understand why it's done that way because it means that we can get the best outcomes for the patients. But it also switches off that 90% of the stuff that a lot of the doctors are and, and should be good at. So giving them the, the capacity to, to um, use those skills, I think is really important. Yeah, you're not using it to improve the system. You're rather just becoming part of a system and being trained in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you obviously mentioned kind of in university, you, you're quite into health and fitness. Is that something that you've always been into? Because I mean, with always our target audience is students living healthier lives because it's been linked to performance and you know good health metrics so um could you tell me more about that yeah absolutely so until i was about 16 or 17 my main interests were eating chocolate biscuits in front of the tv no um, and not moving at all this uh, i was not really interested in sports or anything like that when i was a kid and Actually, the, the way I came round to an interest in health and fitness was actually pretty much uh, from the wrong direction, but it's the one that, that most, most people, you know, or, you know, particularly young men kind of, kind of find themselves. So I was uh, 17 or 18. My girlfriend broke up with me. I thought, well, maybe if I get a six pack, she'll love me again. Um, and then, which isn't true, guys, anybody listen to that. Um, and then 
I sort of really got into it and, and, and it was, and it was a big deal to me. And I, and I definitely had exercise addiction. I definitely had orthorexia. It affected, um, a large parts of my personal life because I was overdoing things and over worrying, um, about body image, the things that I ate, you know, when and how much I could exercise and, you know, it really takes, you know, more than, more than a decade to come out the other side of that. And it was, you know, that kind of big part of it really helps me identify with, with the athletes that, that I'm working with, because I know what sort of, what sort of uh, madness can, can drive them and then the best ways to, to overcome that. So, so like, I think a lot of people uh, in my kind of situation, I, I really got into it and I, and I, and I took it too far. And then it's a process of, of learning both about the, the topic and about yourself to kind of find the best balance and what's, what's going to be, um, again, like I said, sustainable and provide the best health outcomes for as long as possible. So you realized pretty early on that um, you were living an unhealthy life and you kind of had this transition, but then you went all the way to the other side where you kind of yeah. quite extreme about this, but then you kind of, you know, um, and then with your kind of background being such an academic, um, you've kind of gone forward whilst um, solidifying your research skills, but also being quite practical about it. Coaching being the vehicle of you empowering people through this increased knowledge that you have. So that's interesting because you are a physician, like, like I'm a physician as well, but there almost needs to exist a doctor who doesn't, who, who, ha, who possesses quite high level knowledge and can translate this to patients without having to go through these traditional roots of medicine. And I think that's what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, it's, there's, there's something about being able to convert what is an incredibly complex hmm. and almost like, it's almost made complex by people so that they can be experts in it. You know what I mean? Like hmm. everybody's like, oh, this is, you know, this is really complicated, uh, but I'm an expert. So listen to me and do what I hmm. say. And, and actually, I, I think when, um, when you really boil a lot of this stuff down, the things that we need to do to be healthy uh, and optimize performance, which, and, and those for most people, there's a huge amount of overlap in terms of those things. The principles are really simple. Uh, and I think a, lo a lot of people don't uh, try some of these things because they feel it's so complicated or so con contradictory. Um, and you know, there's, there's also this need for many people to, to be the expert that, that people should listen to. And then they, they sort of make it complicated on purpose so that, so that they're the ones that, that you can follow them. But, but in reality, um, if, you, if you really look at everything that exists and, and take things for, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm biased by an evolutionary or ancestral viewpoint, which is that I believe that we evolved in a certain set of conditions and that those conditions should inform the best ways that we can work uh, to improve our health. That, that doesn't mean that there aren't incredible benefits to modern society and modern medicine. And often when I talk about this kind of stuff, people are like, oh, but you know, there are all these great things about modern medicine. And yes, absolutely. I think the best approach is the combination of hmm. informing our environment based on the, the way that we evolved and adapted. And then on top of that, we get to use amazing things like antibiotics and surgery and vaccinations and all these things that have kept so many people uh, alive for much longer uh, over the last you know, few, uh, few hundred years. So we can absolutely now start to use the best of both worlds. So it's about building the pillars of kind of wellness and staying well, and then yeah. augmenting that with kind of modern medicine. And I would absolutely. agree. 
but so how would you so but i almost feel like information needs to be disseminated more quickly to the public for this week for example there's the the study which shows that cardiovascular disease risk is reduced significantly by male men who can kind of do 40 push-ups in 30 seconds. Yeah, I was going to cite right? that study. I had that in my notes in front of me. You stole right. it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. We think alike. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm using you as a leading light for me, <laughs> for my career. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that comes out great. But by the time we find out in medical schools or doctors learn that, like one doctor knew, I, I gave a talk uh, on artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and one doctor knew that, the new Apple watch can take an ECG, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is quite surprising. <laughs> so how does this information is happening so quickly? These changes, you know, these wellness markers, these, all this it all exists, but the by time is regulated and, you know, people find doctors haven't got the time to find out about it and tell patients, you know, um, how, how do we get around that? Or how are you getting around that? So I used to be, you know, and I, and I, and I still am very interested in, in the cutting edge. And I have so many friends and, and and a team of people that I know and work with and collaborate with that that basically helps me stay in touch with, with a lot of this knowledge because there are so many podcasts, there are so many papers, there are so many companies doing fabulous work. Hmm. Um, so I, I have several friends, you know, probably a, a dozen, many of whom are, are doctors, but in you know, various fields and, and people with, you know, the, the people that I work with at Nourish Balance Thrive, we, we have, a, we have a, a central repository, which is our Slack channel, where a lot of this stuff gets deposited. So a lot of this great information comes to me. I don't have to go out in the world, world to look for it. So, you know, creating a group of people who you know and trust and, mm. and you, know, you know, have at least similar interests. You want different ideas. You want people to disagree with you. That's super important. Uh, you want this stuff to, to kind of come to you. So that's, that's one way that, that I, that I um, navigate that. But equally, I, I used to be really worried about always being at the cutting edge. And, and the more time I've spent, again, reading papers, working directly with clients and, and the clients I work with, I get several hours uh, with and I get to really, you know, understand what's going on in their environment and with them. And that's not something that uh, doctors generally get to do within the traditional mm. system. Again, no. it's not their fault. It's just that it's just no time. There's so many patients. Um, and what I've realized is that the most important things have not changed. And yes, if you want to work at the bleeding edge and get the last 0.5% of performance, you know, th- that that's a certain subset of knowledge that, that you can go for and you can work there. But if you're trying to make as many people as possible, uh, as healthy as possible and say, you know, the students um, who are going to be using your app, making sure that they're as healthy as possible. The basics are always going to be the same. Uh, the, the things that are, um, are going to help them study the best, perform the best are, are always going to be the same. So there's, there's always, you know, if, if you have this lens, and so my lens is the environment around the, around the person and how that affects their physiology, that doesn't, you know, what we're, what we're finding in that field is, is now all my biases are being confirmed by the new, by the new studies, just because of the, of the particular lens that you take. So there's, there doesn't necessarily need to be this, this continuous rush to, to always know the latest data. Like we, we knew that having a certain amount of cardiovascular fitness and maintaining muscle mass and strength as we age is one of the best ways to prevent chronic disease. This new paper is really nice because it, it absolutely quantifies it. You know, how, how, how strong do I need to be in order to minimize my risk of future cardiovascular disease? Well, if I could do 40 push-ups, then I'm pretty close. Great. Yeah. You know, now we have a number on it, but we already knew that 
something like that was going to be really important. So most of the data, again, is coming out, it's kind of, is, is just giving us um, the evidence to support uh, a general framework. Uh, but in reality, the framework could already have been there and you don't need to worry about, you, you never, you're never going to know all the data and all the studies yeah. that come out, like that you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to figure that out. I think that's a difficulty because similar to you, so I've kind of followed a certain, you know, influences or kind of medical experts such as yourself on Twitter and LinkedIn um, to keep on top of the best research in the fields of, you know, digital health, but mm -hmm. as well as, you know, um, lifestyle medicine and medicine. So that's how I kind of filter out the noise, but you're right. Every single day, there's so much you're learning. And, you know, I had obviously had Josh uh, Turknet on the podcast, um, recently and I was asking about fMRIs so it's a lot of information that sometimes comes out and strong and then you get information that contradicts it and then you know a lot of people um, can you know the general public says like eggs were good for me and then they're bad for me then they're declared good for me again so what do yeah. I actually follow mm -hmm. um, but um, I think I think um, the way you've said it we, we know the basic principles and um, for the extra percent 0.05 percent of performance um we might need certain you know adjuncts but generally speaking to stay healthy um the information is out there so it's interesting you spend a lot of so you, so you believe in the coaching concept obviously and, and that's mm -hmm. something at O waves we're really pushing because we believe behavior changes through coaching um and everyone is a you know it's, it's an n equals one everyone is different yeah um, so so you're spending quite a lot of hours coaching um these clients a lot of them are athletes um, Formula One drivers, I heard, which is pretty cool, yeah, <laughs> I've yeah. got to say. So do you see them change quite quickly or do you tweak little things? Are you measuring their blood biomarkers? Um, how are you going about this? Yeah, it, it, that, that really depends, again, on, on the person in front of you. And, and, I, and I'm lucky that, that most, of my, most of the people I work with have a, a huge amount of interest in their health and they also have, a, you know, a reasonable disposable income or have made a disposable income such that they can really dig into, you know, both the, both paying for coaching from myself and, you know, the various people who, who I work with and behavior change is a huge part of that. And we have uh, Dr. Simon Marshall is our absolute expert. He's our performance psychologist. He's worked with Tour de France uh, cyclists and he used to be a professor of public health and, you know, this is his area oh, wow. of expertise so so whenever we're having some behavior change struggles i'm just like oh speak to simon he'll solve all your problems <laughs> so then it's nice because then i don't have to do um something that i am less good at and i can give the client you know the real expert on, on the topic you should have him on your podcast um definitely <laughs> so so with the people we work with nourish balance thrive um they they tend to be endurance athletes it's not um, exclusively and we also have we also have an increasing number of people just with chronic disease um, uh, issues chronic health issues and um, they they come to us and there's usually you know we spend a lot of time taking a history that's something that was you know very important uh, taught to us in, in medical school and then we do some uh, some basic blood tests we have uh, we've built a tool called the blood chemistry calculator that has a, a number of predictive algorithms that allows us to extract a lot more data out of basic blood tests than maybe you could get uh, otherwise. And then uh, we have a whole host of other testing available to us if we need it. We can do various stool tests, um, urine tests. Um, we can look at all kinds of different hormones. We can look at uh, you know, some metabolomics. Um, and a lot of that sort of just helps us figure out uh, what we might need to do uh, with this person. So 
when you're working with a highly motivated endurance athlete, they will literally take anything you give them and they will gobble it up and they will take any supplement. They will do any protocol. They will change their training. You know, these guys are, are really agile and they're really responsive. When you're on the other side, uh, working with somebody like a Formula One driver, these guys are so overwhelmed and they're constantly moving and they're constantly working on the car and they're, you know, there's constantly people demanding their time. Change happens really slowly because it's just only so much bandwidth that somebody like that has. So it really comes down to what's the thing that I think is going to make the biggest difference? How can I help the coach? So each driver has their own coach. So I mainly work directly with the coaches rather than the drivers because the coach basically runs everything for the driver. How am I going to help that coach implement this one change that's that's going to that's going to um, you know, give the, the biggest bang for the buck. So it really depends, again, on the person in front of you, what's their bandwidth, what are they willing to do, what are they trying to achieve, and then making sure that, that they, can, they can implement whatever strategies we, we, um, we discuss or think are going to result in the best outcomes. So it seems that time can be a big restrictive factor for people implementing change. And, and that's with our, with our concept of always, um, we're trying to people to kind of, for example, you know, screen time is a very new feature on the on the iphone oh yeah um you know you've realized how many hours you're spending which you could be doing more beneficial things um so same with o waves it kind of categorize your stats of how you spent your time but you're almost planning it inputting it at the moment um mm-hmm. we, we are working on kind of um taking that forward to make it more dynamic um so you you mentioned to are you using with these algorithms are you using um machine learning to get new trends in this data that you have from all these kind of um, clients yeah so there's there's a few ways that that we've done this and, and chris who i mentioned earlier is he's a, a software engineer by by training and was brought over to uh the us from the uk to work in silicon valley and we there's a few things that we've we've both used the data that we have directly from our clients so the first thing that we built was basically a, or we asked the question can we predict the results of complex or expensive biochemical tests from subjective questions so everybody who comes to us there are uh, 50 50 odd questions they're answered on a scale of one to five and it covers everything from your sleep your digestion your mood your sex drive um, all this kind of stuff just your your subjective quality of life and then based on that we could predict issues with certain hormones uh, certain gut infections um you know, low hemoglobin levels, which is obviously a, a, a big factor in terms of endurance performance. So just based on subjective questions within our population, the, this, um, the algorithm that Chris trained was able to predict a lot of these issues. So that was the first thing that we did with the data that we have. And now we have this, um, it's a commercial tool that is mainly being used by other functional medicine practitioners. Um, and if you want to get in, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, we could talk about whether the word, whether the, the phrase functional medicine is a useful <laughs> phrase or not. Um, it isn't, but it's just the one that exists. Um, yeah. In the UK, there's a lot of stigma around that word. Um, less so in America. Lifestyle yeah. medicine is more the term being used here. Yeah, the um, problem with lifestyle medicine is that it's, um, and, and I say this as somebody who's part of a lifestyle medicine society. I know. <laughs> it's, intricately, it's intricately woven into the vegan lifestyle, which again is not something that's necessarily going to be the best <laughs> for everybody or anybody potentially um so that's the, the problem is lifestyle medicine has kind of been co-opted by that <laughs> one particular brand of thinking uh, in terms of you know uh, health do you um, believe it should be personalized medicine almost because with genetics coming into it and as you said microbiome testing and you know where we're going with health is it one different ways work for different people or are you still quite the 
um, ancestral approach of health. Yeah, yeah. So the, the ancestral approach is, is is definitely what's worked best. Um, okay. Um, How does me. that work? Tell me more about that. Yeah. So so um, uh, wait. I'll I'll just uh, finish qualifying that. I guess. Um, okay. Perfect. The 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 sort of the person. Well, so so what. The, we spent ages trying to come up with a phrase on our own. Like, what would we call this so that we don't have the stigma? And the problem with the word functional hmm. in formal medicine is that usually means that you, that's code for the doctor saying the patient's making it up. Um, so, oh, like this is a functional problem um, or it's supratentorial as in it's in the brain. It's like, it's just, they're crazy. Um, that's this kind of doctor code. So it kind of, it's difficult to then get that phrase meaning something else into the, into the world of medicine. But when, when it, we came up with a phrase sustained health engineering, cause this is really, it's really more of an engineering problem. It's a, it's a, it's a complex system. There's inputs and outputs. Um, and there are dials that you can tweak and you know, you know what your inputs are. You probably know what your output is. Uh, the problem with uh, most health inputs or most health behaviors is that the feedback loop is really long. Like I do all this stuff because I think it's going to make me live longer, but I'm not going to find out for 50 years. Mm. Um, so that's, that's where some of the, the, the blood-based algorithms that we've been building and other people have been building um, can sort of help you maybe see more dynamic changes in your biochemistry and your physiology that are going to give you better uh, uh, you know, a better idea of whether what you're doing is working. That's, that's really important. But when it comes to some of the, the fancier stuff that's available, I fully believe that fully sequencing the, uh, the gut microbiome to the gut microbiome, you know, fully sequencing, you know, whole genome sequencing of the person, I, I think they're going to be useful in the future. The problem is that right now they are not. Um, yeah. It's a huge amount of data that we do not know how to interpret. And people who tell you that they know how to interpret or that they know how you should eat based on your genetics are basically lying. Um, or they're massively over-interpreting the data that they have. So I fully believe that's going to be important in the future. But right now, the things that I know work, because I've seen it work and based on the data that we have available, is the environment and the phenotype rather than the genotype. The phenotype being the physiological output. Um, and that can be your blood tests, your heart rate, your blood sugar, all these things that are easily and cheaply measured. And I can also track over time and understand what it means when those things change, which is not the case for the gut microbiota. And obviously your, your genetics don't change. I think epigenetics um, is gonna be really important and there are some really cool companies doing that, but it's gonna cost you 2,000 pounds to find mm. out your, your epigenetic signature or you know, $2,000, $2,500. Um, and that's just not accessible to most people right now. It's too expensive. So that will become a thing in the future. But right now there's really cheap and easy data that we can use and, and that's, that's what we tend to focus on. So the environment, um, and, I, and I'm sure you've heard this multiple times before, you know, there are just four or five things that are basically going to drive most of your physiology yeah. and then you, know, you can even measure the outputs. Yeah. Um, and they are sleep and circadian rhythm management, movement, uh, real food, the quality of your diet, and then having some kind of meaning or purpose or, or social connection um and th that's it and if you can if you can manage those and understand how they affect your physiology then you can change things and you can see what the output of those those are and you can and you can start to build something that that, that again is going to result in sustained uh in sustained health i love how you put that because that's how i think about health as well inputs outputs it's like a system you know almost an engineering yeah it's um, like engineering yeah i prefer looking at it that way and a lot of um my colleagues and people I've worked with don't see it that way, but, but essentially it is. And 
the, the five factors, that's what we're focusing on in, in, with O-Waves as well, because that's what you have most control over. So with circadian rhythms, so circadian rhythms being um, our main kind of focal point for mm-hmm. O-Waves, um, what is your take on circadian science? Where do you think it's at now? And do you feel we have specific times at which we're primed for optimal performance, for example, reaction times, alertness, um, et cetera? Yeah. So I think, again, um, the, the research is being done currently. So guys like Sachin Panda, Panda yeah. um, it's, is, he's obviously the, the guy you think of first. And he's, he's awesome. He, he's, he's a good friend of mine. He does incredible oh, work. Great. Um, and, you know, but again, I think the, the stuff that he's doing is kind of just really putting some flesh on what we might intuitively hmm. uh, be able to figure out to a certain extent. And that is that it's really important to get light during the daytime. It's really important to get darkness during the nighttime. And again, that just goes back to the environment that, that, that the body expects. And, you know, hundreds of, of genes change on an hourly basis. And again, they are largely driven by the, um, by the timing of light exposure particularly for things that are, that are run from the brain down and then the timing of food exposure as well, which, you know, the, the clocks in the liver are, are largely driven by, by food exposure. And so then you want to kind of combine those things. So the simplest way to think about that is eat when it's light and don't eat when it's dark. And if you want one really simple rule that will allow you to get the most out of your circadian rhythm, then that's probably the way to do it. You can obviously, there's a lot of ways that you can kind of make it more complicated, uh, but that's, that's the simplest way. Um, and then, uh, so with circadian biology as the, as the background, you can then start to fit all those other things that I've talked about in, right? Mm. So, so we, we maybe talked a bit about food and obviously quality is important, but uh, Panda has shown that the, the timing of the window and the length of the window, um, you know, even regardless of the quality of, of, of the food, that's, that's you know, going to be really important. And then movement, again, you know, perhaps if you're trying to entrain your circadian rhythm, if you don't have great light exposure, then one of the ways to tell your body that it's daytime is to do some exercise. So some kind of brief, you know, at least reasonably intense um, period of exercise early in the morning, you know, when it's supposed to be light outside, that's probably the best way to help time the clocks. Um, But equally, there's always going to be a performance component. So um, if you are somebody who's trying to lift as heavy as possible in the gym, the body is warmest and, and is primed for that usually in the sort of mid afternoon. So there's always going to be some kind of, um, balance between what it is you're trying to, what it is your, what your goal, what your goal is in terms of your performance or your health. And equally, um, I say that maybe you'll be strongest in the afternoon. Equally, you can train the body. Uh, the, the most important thing in terms of performance in a given sport or in you know in a given event is that you know when you train become is then when you be, become best at it. So if you have a if you have a race coming up or you have a, a weightlifting competition coming up, you want to train at that time of day. So if it's going to be at six o'clock in the morning, then you should be training at six o'clock in the morning because that's when you'll perform at your best. So there's always ways of you know there's there's kind of what's um, sort of theoretically optimal um, and what's going to pre- give you the best result based on what you're trying to achieve. So you kind of have to integrate the two. So for students, if they have an exam at 10 a.m., should they be studying at 10 a.m.? Or does that work um, as well? Well, they should be used to being awake at 10 a.m. Awake, not um, falling that's, asleep. That's, that, that, that's a good start. Um, but yes, that, that's always going to be a part of it. And like, 
uh, I've done it. I've done the all-nighters. I've done the putting things off until the last minute. I've done weeping at my desk before finals <laughs> as an undergrad. Like, I, I completely appreciate what, what people um, you know, are normally doing. But yes, if, if you know when your exam is going to be, that is the time when you should be you know, prepared and ready to go. So uh, you're probably going to want to make sure you got a good night's sleep the night before. Uh, incredibly important for exam performance and then also that maybe you're awake two or three hours before then um so that you know you haven't just like rolled out of bed and and, and shown up and if that becomes part of your routine that's what your body expects is what's normal for you and again you know that's probably when you're going to be performing at your best anyway then that's going to be you know really important to to make sure you get the most out of yourself for that exam you went to um obviously university oxford and university of cambridge which are the best universities in the world for me, when I, when I got my, so I got an offer for medicine from the University of Cambridge. Uh-huh. But when I, when I went, um, so obviously past the interview, got my offer. Um, my biggest thing that put me off was people were sacrificing that. A lot of people were sacrificing their lifestyle in medicine because it was just mm-hmm. so intense mm-hmm. uh, for studying, right? So, so yeah. that was a common theme I saw at the university and that made me kind of, you know, decline my offer actually. Um, yeah. Is that something you that, saw? Yeah, that, that definitely, there's, there, there's, on the last day, or the day when exam results traditionally used to come out mm. in Cambridge, there's a Sunday uh, in June, and it's called Suicide Sunday. <laughs> okay. And no, literally, is... that's why it's called that. Okay, um, is it? Okay, I just yeah, thought. <laughs> and, and that kind of yeah. tells you something about the nature of, of the way those things run and, and, and how, how seriously people take it. And... I completely understand why that environment doesn't work for some people. And actually I spent most of my time at Cambridge rowing uh, oh, <laughs> like good. Much, more, much more time doing that than I did um, doing my work. Um, and luckily I managed to succeed at both. So um, yeah, I think having some other focus is really important when you're, tr- when you're trying to, to achieve academically, it can't be the only thing hmm. um, or else you really will drive yourself crazy. But that, you know, that environment doesn't work for everybody. The one uh, upside of it at least when you're doing the undergraduate part at cambridge is that the terms are only you do three eight yeah, weeks yeah three eight that, so, that was one of the the push pull factors yeah so you're kind of you crush yourself for eight weeks but then essentially yeah. you spend more time on holiday than you do at university um so but again you know it works really well for some people it doesn't work for others so i, yeah. complete, I can completely understand why that environment you know really really turned you off yeah, it was very intense. I mean, it was amazing university and it was just looking at six years of medicine at, because um, I've always been quite into kind of innovation and um, quite entrepreneurial and tech. So I knew I needed the flexibility um, mm-hmm. early on to, to diversify, um, to be fair, when I started medical school, but I loved health. And what I really loved was this lifestyle aspect of, you know, understanding sleep, endocrinology, mm-hmm. um, exercise nutrition like i had a real passion for this but unfortunately medical school did not really equip me for that so it was what you do outside about any of that yeah Yeah. so now with that so i'm quite interested in kind of human 2.0 where that combines now with where we're going with machines Mm -hmm. right so with now ai and kind of wearables and the cognitive space coming in it's, it's it's an exciting time of how these things are going to combine because we had to remember so many for example phone numbers in the past I was talking to Josh, um, but now we've got things like um, Siri, Alexa. Um, so it's, it's, it's almost we're, we're in a different environment. Like you talk about environment being key. Our environment is changing. Mm-hmm. It's how do we kind of adapt to that? So it's interesting because you worked with the 
you work as part of a team at the Human and Machine Cognition um, Institute for Human Institute, and Machine yeah. Cognition, yeah, in Florida. That interests me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is it, it's it's this incredible institute that was set up by my friend Ken Ford, um, who I was very lucky to be introduced to, and he, I mean, he was George Bush's um, science advisor. He's been at like oh, the wow. top all the committees of all the science foundations, and he's like one of the U.S. U.S.'s top scientists, and he's actually an expert in artificial intelligence. Um, and he has this had this idea for an institute where there's basically a completely flat structure. He's like, I just want to find interesting people, and then whatever it is that they want to work on, that's what we're going to work on. Um, and so it's very different from a traditional academic structure. And I say this, I'm kind of peripherally involved. So I, I know him and some of the other people there. I'm on the other side of the country from this institute, so I don't work. Okay. Um, so it, and um, the fact that the, 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 where it is is kind of the, the only turnoff um, of, of okay. the whole thing. And I, and I know several people who are also associated with the Institute who are kind of like, if it was you know, on the West Coast somewhere, then, we, then we'd love to physically work there. Um, but, Seems like my type of environment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, hierarchical structure. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no hierarchy. Everybody's just called a research scientist. Regardless, you know, they may okay. have come from another university where they were a professor yeah. or a chair of something or a director of something, but everybody's a research scientist. And it's just super smart people doing interesting stuff. And they have this interesting combination of... So they, they do a lot of work with the military. Um, they have a lot of military funding. They're trying to find, out, find ways to better support the performance of special forces operators particularly uh, okay. but they also work with nasa um they work basically humans in extreme environments is, is there is is one side of their uh, interest and then they obviously have a lot of uh, sort of artificial intelligence machine learning and then they do a lot of space stuff again kind of associated with the nasa work um but interested in space exploration and you know, detecting asteroids before they hit Earth and kill us all and all that kind of stuff. So they do some like really incredible work and it's just awesome to be associated with people who are able to just work on whatever it is that they think is interesting um, and, and have the kind of structure to, to, to make it happen as quickly as possible because that's not generally what happens in the traditional academic setting or the medical setting. You know, they're all very, you know, they're all very similar in that manner. Yeah, very homogenous. It sounds very thrilling actually, you know, you're working on the, you know, knowing what's happening on the cutting edge. But then um, in parallel, um, you know, you also impact. So because lifestyle and kind of sleep and um, nutrition, that's quite applicable to the whole population, right? Absolutely. So keep, keeping your hand in both is, I think, that perfect. Um, we talk about O-Wave's Ikigai, you know, mm-hmm. um, fulfills, you know, what you're kind of very interested about, but then what's impacting people at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. This brings me on to um, your routine. So um, at O-Waves, we're quite um, obsessed with mapping people's O's, so the generic, how they run their day, um, generally. So um, we, we've done quite a few um, celebrities and kind of what time they wake up, what time they sleep, exercise, eat, um, the lot of it, right? So yeah. it'd be interesting for our listeners to find out how you run your day. Sure. So I generally get up about six, some, somewhere between 6 and 7 a.m., uh, and this is partly driven by any uh, commitments that I or my wife have if she has to go into work or I have to go into work but it's also partly driven by our dogs so okay. <laughs> when the dogs are ready to get up then it's time to get up um, and then from there uh, uh, I'll uh, let the dogs out go outside for a little bit not that long you know maybe just a, a few minutes but at least I'm outside um, 
and then I'll make myself a cup of coffee. That's very, very important to me. I live in Seattle, which is like one of the, the, the okay. Western society's uh, capitals of coffee. Um, and then at, at that point, I'll usually maybe start thinking about, you know, what, what work it is I'm going to do uh, that day, clearing some emails, um, or, you know, I often have calls, maybe I'll have a podcast. Um, then I'll usually have some breakfast uh, somewhere between maybe 9 and 10 a.m. And then, again, I'll con continue whatever work it is that I have. So I work a lot from home, but I also have the lab that I go into, you know, where I do my research. Um, I usually have lunch as well, again, maybe around 1 o'clock. If I'm at home or I can get home from the lab, I'll usually I – have, I have a gym that I built in uh, basically a, a big shed that's in the uh, garden or in the yard, depending on which country you're in. Um, and so I'll, I'll usually train for about an hour or 90 minutes, uh, most days, five or six days a week, probably sometime between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Um, then around 6 o'clock, 6.30, I'll have dinner. I'll, I'll cook dinner for me and my wife. Um, then, depending on workload, either we will both sit down at our computers and do some more work or you know, when we can, we'll try and spend the next couple of hours uh, together. And that may be talking about something and maybe watching something on TV together, but just spending some time together, um, trying to wind down. We usually try to be in bed by about 9 p.m. Um, I'll read a book. I usually like to read fiction in bed because that, you know, it's, it's sort of like move away from spending a day talking or reading about <laughs> science. Um, and then I'm probably asleep between 9.30 and 10 p.m. That sounds quite a balanced routine. Um, I like the fact that you read fiction before bed because you always assume um, such qualified people are probably, you know, I don't know, reading about the mTOR pathway or yeah. <laughs> something and about it's, longevity. It's really, it's really important to me. So whenever, like, often I go on a podcast or, or something and somebody's yeah. like, what's your favorite, what, you know, what, give us a book recommendation. And they want some, like, you know, super, <laughs> super fancy scientific book. And I'm usually like, I recommend the, the most recent fiction book that I read. I, I think, you know, for me, that's, for me, that's, um, that's incredibly important. Yeah, no, that, that, that kind of that ability to switch off and, and think and think about something else that's that's very important to me so I've, i mean i've read fiction before bed my entire life um and you know some, sometimes i'll read a a non-fiction book or a science book but I, I much prefer to read you know read something else so you have quite the routine and it's interesting because um being a successful individual i mean you do you do have a good routine um it's interesting that um you know how in this in, in the you know, current climate with um, being a 24-hour society and the gig economy, routines are almost breaking down. So, you know, generations before us um, had, a, had very, you know, stringent, strict um, routines. But nowadays, if you look at the adolescent population, it's, it's very kind of dictated by what time someone's posted on Instagram or, you know, <laughs> Netflix, you know, the new show is being released and, and we're living in this kind of globalized world where you know like we're talking across from you know uk to the states but you know australia so people are almost shifting their routines to make other things work um do you think that's going to have an impact on health generally yeah yes absolutely and i mean don't get me wrong like i said i've i've, I've done everything that people would normally do and hmm. For various different reasons, either because you know I liked staying up late, and when I was doing my PhD, at least for the first you know the first year uh, before I met my my now wife, um, 
and actually it sort of created a routine that was helpful at least for, for that period of time you know i'd go to bed late and i'd go into the lab late and i'd work in the lab late and everybody in norway works from like 8 a.m to 4 p.m and then the time okay. i got my best work done was between 4 p.m and maybe 8 p.m yeah. uh, because nobody was there to like no distractions yeah no, dis- no nobody was there to bother me and then at 8 p.m i'd go to the gym and then i'd go home um and actually that was useful uh because i did a long distance relationship thing so then i'd get on you know just because mm. of the way um the call schedule you know we could the times a day we could talk that just ended up being really useful so then i'd go to bed you know after midnight and again i'd wake up after 10 a.m and that was that was useful to me but i also know that that's probably not going to be best in terms of my my long-term health and one thing that's really important for me is my sleep like i can get by a couple of days with short and sleep but then i, I become a, a, a really useless human being and i just you know sleep is something that i can no longer compromise on so so, so sometimes i will i'll get up really early because i need to talk to australia or europe um or you know i'll stay up late for the same reason or there's a deadline and something i have to hit and I, and I stay up late or i get up early and that that kind of stuff being flexible and doing that occasionally is absolutely fine but it's the things that you do the majority of the time that are going to have the biggest impact on your health so then when i can and things are, are normal 80 90 percent of the time that routine is really important and and when people are spending all this time waking up at different times going to bed at different times eating at different times the data really is um coming together to show that that has a huge detrimental impact on your long-term health if you think about uh, shift workers dramatically increased risk of cardiovascular disease certain cancers um and all of that comes down to the timing of when things happen in the body and then when you expose it to the things it expects to be exposed to and those being out of sync, you know, a lot of stuff can, you know, happens, um, you know, negative physiological effects come from, from that, that happening, you know, that sort of dyssynchrony uh, between what the body expects and what you expose it to. So, yeah, I really think, um, you know, everybody's, you know, you sleep, sleep when you're dead and you can do whatever you like, whenever you like, that's, that's great. And if that's what you want to do, then, power to you i'm not gonna um you know i'm not gonna disagree with you with that but if you want what's going to produce the best long-term health outcomes then you know exposing the body to what it expects at the time that it expects it is one of the most important things you can do for your health so a consistent template but you can be slightly flexible but for example i went for my night shifts long shifts you're stressed um you know a lot of cognitive load um but then then you finish right you finish at 8 p.m but you have to be back the following day like 7 a.m so then you're like, you have a choice. Do I sleep? Do I shorten my sleep from like, say you've got seven hours to six hours? Or do I go hit by hitting the gym? Or do I prioritize my sleep? The gym, yeah. I'm going late to the gym. So that could keep me up, but it might not. It might make me more tired and help me switch off. It might help me relax. Or do I make time for a book? You know, when, when, time is, when time is restricted or you have less time, do you have kind of a hierarchy of what, do you let your body kind of tell you what you need to do or do you have kind of a, a hierarchy of like, like a diagram of A is more important than B, which is more important than C? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I, um, I guess well, personally I'm at a place where I am very good at kind of listening to my body. It's one of those ultimate cliches, isn't it? Um, but I've done everything correctly i've done everything incorrectly and i have a fairly good idea of how those things will affect me so now like my training and the days i train is very intuitive often i just be like oh i don't really feel like it today and then i just won't i I, I won't um and i I, I won't let it bother me i won't sort of you know a lot of people would then 
get really worried because they didn't train that day or and it's and, and I see the same thing with eating. So sometimes you do something and you eat a lot of food and then mm. the next day I'm just not hungry anymore. So I don't worry about it. I don't eat as much. And it kind of takes some, the, you know, you, the, if you, again, if you expose the body to the, the environment that it expects, largely this kind of stuff just happens. You know, mm. you can't micromanage all the macronutrients and micronutrients that go in your body. It's mm -hmm. physically impossible. You might think that you're doing it, but you're, you're not doing it. Like Definitely. you might think you know how many calories are in that meal in front of you or how many calories you're going to extract from it. You have no idea. You like wow. within like 50% error, you know, by, by some, by some accounts, uh, unless it's super hyper processed food, which you can absorb all of. If it's like a, a, a real meal with like a salad yeah. and some steak and maybe a sweet potato, you have no idea how many calories, are in that yeah. or how many calories are going to go into the body. So there's no point in, 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 in worrying about that. You just let the body figure it out and you have that meal that gets digested, what goes in. And then if it wasn't enough, you want some more. If it was too much, then the next day you'll be less hungry. So hmm. like you, the body should be able to self-regulate in that way. We, we kind of, we confuse it by the light cues at the wrong times of day, meals at the wrong times mm. of day, all that kind of stuff. So um, the question was about hierarchy. And when you're, you're shifting your schedule, it's uh, probably, it's important to do the thing at the time of day that you want to then do it next. So if, and it's the same thing in terms of if you're um, flying across multiple time zones and you're going to be jet lagged, it's probably best to not eat for a period of time before you leave on the flight and then just have your first meal at breakfast time in your at your destination and that's going to help you set your liver clock much faster rather than if you're eating at your at the place you you're going to be leaving um then you you're probably eating in the middle of the night at your destination and that's going to slow down that's going to you know worsen your jet jet, jet lag because it's going to slow down the amount of time it takes you to adapt to your new time zone so then if you're coming off a night shift and it's 8 p.m and you can't quite, you know, are you going to be going to the gym at 8 p.m. the next stretch of days? No, you're probably not. Um, are you going to be having dinner? Yes, maybe. Um, or are you going to be asleep? Um, then I'd prioritize the thing that you want to be doing at that time, you know, the, the next day or, 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 for, or for the following week. So that's the easiest way to think about okay. it. You know, what am I going to be doing at this time in three days time? Okay, that's probably what I should be doing now, or at least trying to do now, because then that's going to help you adapt much faster. So do you think it's worth working out on a weekly basis that on average I got this much sleep? So say, say one day you got seven, one day eight, um, very slightly, or you, in terms of you talked about tracking food, you know, got a variety of vegetables and fruits across a week. Do you think it's, it's more worthy tracking almost over a week than, than over a day? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to track anything, then over longer periods of time, it's yeah. going to be, it's going to be much more important. And there's like, uh, there's some great, new tools for for weight loss or fat loss more important if you, yeah. you know the fat is what you want to lose you don't want to lose weight from other places um where the the there's no number on the scale but it records your rolling average for the last two weeks okay. so you can see the trend downwards but you don't like for some reason you haven't opened your bowels that day yet and you weigh mm. two oh, pounds yeah. more and you get worried about it so so it, it gives you the general trends and that's going to be that's going to be much more important just like the body integrates calorie requirements over several days or months, right? That's what the hormones leptin and insulin mm. and all those things are, are, are there for. So that's how the body works is integrating signals over, over longer periods of time. Um, and so that's, that's how, it, you know, if you're going to be tracking or measuring some of those things, that's going to be important. And 
for something like sleep, giving yourself the amount of time in bed that you need to get a reasonable amount of sleep is one of the most important things. So micromanaging the amount of sleep that you got every night or worrying about it. And there are now a number of ways that you can track your sleep. I do it, but then then you get to a point where you're like, oh my God, I got 10 minutes of deep sleep last night. That means I'm going to be terrible. I'm going to perform terribly today. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy just because you got worried about the data that you're measuring on yourself. So yeah. make sure that anything that you're tracking is not going to do, and it's the same with heart rate variability. Oh, my heart rate variability sucks today. I've been therefore, using that. <laughs> therefore, I'm going to suck in today. Yeah, so the, the aura yeah. ring is yeah. a fabulous tool, but you really need to know how, how to use it how to use it and how that data is going to going to affect you cognitively and it's so like heart rate variability doesn't tell you anything about how you're going to perform in the gym that day it gives you some rough idea of how a given workout or training session is going to affect you so if your heart rate variability is low you may crush it in the gym but it's just going to take you longer to recover from it so okay. the problem the problem is that people think the heart rate variability is mm -hmm. going to tell them about performance but it, it doesn't really it doesn't correlate with performance well at all but it can tell you over time if you're starting to overtrain or you're pushing too hard or you need more time to recover so again it's just knowing what the data means and 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 how to use it um and and what i see currently is that people measure all this stuff but then it becomes a point of worry which then yeah self-fulfilling prophecy and then they end up feeling worse and performing worse yeah because you're like i'm not hitting that why is my heart rate variability exactly so low um, it was high last week, but yeah, and then you, you think, okay, I won't go for that workout when the workout would probably benefit you just because you might be stressed, which has affected your HRV, but then you need, you know, to, so, so you have to be quite dynamic. It's so where do you lie on the continuum of kind of optimizing human performance so performing well today now and longevity, because there's a lot of arguments with inflammation, um, you know, uh, being kind of a hallmark of you know, longevity, but then sometimes to perform, you need to be, you know, stressing your body in the right hmm. ways um, do you think there's a trade-off or most consistently the principles help you perform better and live longer? Yeah, so if, if you stick to the general principles, they will, do, they will do both. However, you have to accept that if you want to... So sports performance is, 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 is a really good example. And you can think about most professional athletes. So Tour de France cyclists are nice. You Basically, there are these emaciated skeletons that are strapped to yeah. a bike. And they can go uphill super, super fast. Like, it's incredible. I probably wouldn't even make it up the hill. And they're, leave, you know, and they're, they're heading up at it 20 miles an hour. Um, they are incredibly fit, but they are not healthy, right? That, that is not a state of health. So, yes, if there is a certain thing that you need to perform at, and sports is a good example, there is always going to be a trade-off. And, yes, um, the, the exercise that you're doing is probably going to, be better for you than doing nothing than the average population that is doing nothing so it's not that you know it's, it's a u it's definitely a u-shaped curve um but you just need to acknowledge that that's a trade-off that you're making if you want to perform at a given sport or the sport is the way that you socialize and we know that you know social connection is super important then that's fine you just need to know that there's a trade-off you know however if your if your performance is to perform well at your job with your family you know, live a healthy life as long as possible, then, you know, the, the kind of, you do need stresses. You need to introduce these things that create adaptation and exercise is, is another great one. Um, but you just, you, there's a certain amount that is going to give you that, that, uh, that adaptation. And then any more than that is going to be diminishing returns. And then a lot more than that is going to potentially be detrimental. So um, if we're talking about exercise and people then say, okay, so what's the optimal amount of exercise to do if you just want longevity, mm -hmm 
um, and, and health as long as possible. It's about 30 to 45 minutes every day of vigorous, uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity. So that's basically anything from um, brisk walking to weight training to going for a jog or a bike. And 30 to 45 minutes a day is pretty much as, as much as you need. And beyond that, there's diminishing returns. And then a, long, a lot way beyond that, there's potential detrimental effects. And then mixing it up. So you want to do some aerobic stuff, right? You need some aerobic capacity. You need some strength. You want to be able to do your 40 push-ups. Um, yep. And so, you know, a 50-50 mix, if, if people need a, something prescriptive, is usually going to be about right. So you have to kind of obviously achieve that balance. But to say, so, so one day, if you're really not feeling, if your body's telling you, you know, you're, you're quite tired and you've been doing that 45 minutes a day, Mm-hmm. Uh, because tiredness can be caused by you know work as well and, and you know studying mm-hmm. um is it worth still getting in the gym and getting that done or shortening your workout and being adaptive or just following through with with your yeah, plan? It, it, it probably depends on where you are um in terms of the habits that you're trying to build so if you're somebody who you know movement or exercise or training or whatever you want to call it is 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 a is built into your routine mm-hmm. every day um, or you know, every week, every month, it's sort of just a, a part of the of the background. Then, you know, if you just don't feel like working out that day, don't do it and, and don't beat yourself up about it. But if you're somebody who's trying to build these habits, then you know, get you know, getting out and just doing something, doing some movement that then helps you build that as part of your routine. That's going to be much. That's going to be much more important. So it kind of just depends on on where you are in that system. And and if um if you're trying to build a habit, you know, making it a regular part of your structured day uh, is going to be really important. So then, you know, just making sure you get out and do something may be enough to help, you know, ground that habit and help you build it um, rather than say that the, the advanced trainer who's been doing this forever, who just feels pretty beat down and just wants to spend the night on the sofa. So are you a fan of um, talking about stresses, um, temperature stressing? So heat and extreme cold conditions. Do you think that has that been, is there any evidence to show, um, that improves performance or helps recovery. Yeah, um, and and again, it, it depends on what you want what you want to achieve. So, um, heat, I think, is really important, and heat stresses have certainly been shown to improve uh, cardiovascular performance. Uh, maybe even increased muscle growth if you if you expose your body to a heat stressor like a sauna after a training session. Um, and then there's also the benefits of sweating. Uh, there's a lot of science coming again coming out of finland so it's kind of is does it only work for Finns? but you know mm-hmm. the, you know if you if you uh, sauna for more than 20 minutes and this is dry sauna uh, so you get the cardiovascular stress mm-hmm. you're sweating so you're maybe eliminating certain things that you know there's there's some things that the body doesn't excrete as well through mm-hmm. the urine and the stool you excrete better through sweat so maybe okay. you're reducing uh, certain burdens there because you're sweating things out um you know and that certainly seems to be protective in terms of cardiovascular disease and stroke again in Finns, but hope you know i come at least me personally i am of a northern european heritage i'm half Icelandic, so i figure the genetics are going to be fairly similar quite similar (laughs) yeah so i can probably apply that to myself um and so that so that so heat can be really important cold can also be really important and again um cold showers cold baths they can increase uh, bagel tone so we know that's going to be you know potentially important in terms of uh, dampening down inflammation maybe in terms of improving heart rate ability heart rate variability um overall resilience there's also potential benefit in terms of uh, fat browning and then maybe an increase in metabolic rate if you're trying to improve body composition um if you are an athlete and you're trying to perform multiple times um, within a short period of time. So um, 
good examples of something like a CrossFit athlete who has to do multiple events over multiple days um, or any, or any um, athlete who has to do multiple events over multiple days, then ice baths are great because you'll immediately dampen down that inflammation. You'll recover much faster. However, if you are trying to produce a training adaptation, then ice baths after training session actually minimize the inflammation. And like you said, that can be beneficial and it will minimize, yeah. you know, reduce the training effect that you get. So there's some evidence to suggest that after say heavy weight training, if you then immediately got in the, in the ice bath, you won't get as much of a beneficial long-term effect. So again, using the, um, those stresses, uh, depending on the outcome and, and depending on, uh, on when you want to apply them and, and what you want to achieve from them. But hot and cold are both very important, just like um, not eating is, is, uh, is another important stressor, exercise is another important stressor. And the problem is that we live in an environment where the temperature is always controlled, we can eat whenever we want, and we don't have to move. So these are what we call environmental mismatches. They're mismatches between what the body expects and what we deliver to it. So building these stresses, short-term stresses into um, our daily routine, then allows us to again be you know that's part of exposing the body to the environment that it expects you mentioned um, um fasting so how often did you have a fasting protocol um that you follow yeah so i, I don't do i have done some extended fast the longest day the longest one i did was three days and okay. oh, wow. i am very interested in the long-term effects of prolonged fasting however i I'm young enough that I am going to wait for some more robust data in healthy humans before I really worry about it. Um, because if you think about things like, so, so when people talk about um, fasting, they talk about autophagy, which is basically yeah. clearing out the junk in your cells or the proteins that have become oxidized or, or damaged in some way. Um, and you do that because you're, you're, basically restricting any nutrients so the cell says okay well i'll start you know i need some energy so i'll start by just burning up the junk that's kind of the the, the simple way to look at it but in in muscle tissue particularly and in some other tissues the fastest way to initiate autophagy is to do aerobic exercise so if you're somebody who's doing frequent aerobic exercise are there additional benefits on top of that by doing prolonged fasting and the answer is we just don't know so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to, to what I know and what, what I enjoy. And, you know, that's, you know, and I know that I'm stimulating some of those pathways with the exercise that I do. Um, but if, you know, somebody turns up one day and says, you know what, to be a, a healthy person for as long as possible, you should not eat for a week once a, you know, <laughs> once a quarter or, you know, every season, I'm like, great, I'll do it. Um, and, but that being said, it's very important to, again, eat around the time when it's light and then have a period where you don't eat. So I generally eat all my food in an eight to 10 hour window every day. So I make sure there's a, a period of time, you know, overnight where I'm not eating because I think that's going to be, that's something that we could easily do. doesn't require anybody fasting for long mm -hmm. periods of time, but we know that's associated with better, with better health outcomes. Do you see a difference in people who start eating? Cause I've seen the studies, um, because obviously you've, you've coached a lot of people and you've seen kind of examples. Have, mm -hmm. have you seen quite dramatic changes in people who've kind of changed from like an erratic eating pattern to an eight or 10 hour window? Yeah, you, you can see pretty, um, pretty you, uh, most rapidly see improvements in something like blood sugar control. That really seems to happen quite quickly. Um, uh, weight loss, you know, despite not really thinking about 
caloric intake because you you will automatically restrict your calories if you restrict your, your feeding window just because yeah. you can't eat as much and, that and much. You, you, in that much time yeah really and, be and it, just eating <laughs> yeah know, exactly it makes work. it hard um and actually i i did this i did this recently so i broke some of the rules recently because um i was i was at the beginning of the year i was bitten by a snake in costa rica and i spent two weeks Damn, no way what yeah. was that like <laughs> miserable painful, right? <laughs> yeah so, so the initial um we've really gone off topic now but the the initial um the initial bite wasn't so bad but then um i got a really bad infection i had needed multiple days of antibiotics i had an abscess that needed to be drained so they basically cut open a big hole in my leg um and so but the upshot of that the reason why i, mm. I mentioned that is because i lost a lot of weight um, okay and so then to gain it back, I basically broke all the rules and I ate continuously all day for every, every second that I was awake and yeah. it came back really quickly. Like it, you know, it does work, but obviously if you're trying to work the other way, yeah, it is important. And it's usually because the, the calories that you eat, and this is something again that Panda has shown, which is that the calories that you eat late at night tend to be alcohol and ice cream or, yeah. you know, in that kind of realm. So you automatically improve the quality of your diet as well as the number of, you know, reducing the number of calories that you're eating. So that's that, you know, weight management can, can certainly be beneficial there but you can you can see pretty quick changes in terms of um blood sugar control which is a, a nice kind of metric for overall metabolic health and do you take any supplements at all or do you recommend any supplements um i t i take a good multivitamin which i think is um there's uh there's a, there's a lot of uh questions in terms of whether multivitamins are worth taking and i yeah. think a good multivitamin is definitely worth taking just because you, um, there's a lot of stuff missing from food and also if you kind of really look at nutrient status and long-term health outcomes um that's that's certainly going to be beneficial so i take a, a multivitamin i take creatine um i usually have a protein shake after the gym um and that's about it i sometimes will take an icelandic uh, fish oil or cod liver supplement um yeah there's nothing else i take regularly you know i've most of the things that are out there i have taken for a period of time mm -hmm. but again when you're thinking about the um the feedback loop if i start taking a supplement now and i think it's going to help me live longer and healthier i'm going to have to take that thing for the next next 50 years <laughs> do stuck. i you know but, you know am yeah. i really invested in doing that and again you know yeah. most of these things haven't been shown uh, that that's going to be likely so mm -hmm. so i don't um vitamin d so if, again if we're talking about athletic performance creatine vitamin d a good uh i don't take vitamin d but i try and get as much sunlight as possible as i can in seattle yeah. um and, and actually the the sun has many benefits above and beyond your vitamin d level um but that's red, very important for athletic performance similar to red light therapy um yes similar um so you it it's definitely seems to improve uh, immune function it definitely improves uh, blood pressure because it produces nitric oxide under the skin um and also so there was a study uh, just done in india i believe where okay. they took men who were deficient in vitamin d um and then they either gave them a vitamin d supplement or they told them to get out in the sun more and uh vitamin d levels went up about the same in both groups but the o opposite changes were seen in the lipids so the, oh. the lipid profile in terms of like what we might believe is better of metabolic health improved mm. overall only in the sunlight exposed people, but not in the vitamin D people. So again, that doesn't tell you all of the things that are happening, but it tells you that the vitamin D level wasn't the important factor there. It was the sun exposure in terms of some of those things. So 
sun is more important than, than vitamin D. But beyond that, you know, there are various things that, that you can use at, at different times to improve cognitive performance or athletic performance. But in terms of the stuff that's, you know, the, those kind of basics, I, I, those are the things that I stick to. Great. And final question, what motivates you? What's that single factor? What do you live for? What's that kind of factor that keeps you, you know, pushing these boundaries, you know, doing um, so many great academic, um, gaining so many great academic um, qualifications and, you know, the research you're part of, um, what's that motivating factor? Well, that's a really good question. So in the past, again, um, I kind of told you a little bit about my um un- unhealthy habits um over time. i was similar to be fair i think there must be something intrinsic which reverses that switch and then you're like okay i've yeah. neglected i've been qu- i was quite academic and then i was like neglecting a part of my life and then i realized wait this is not life <laughs> right? yeah yeah absolutely so so in the past i was usually driven by acceptance like i wanted people to like me um and this was kind of stemmed from the the fat kid who was bullied at school so i just you know the the pleasure um the desire to please people was was what drove me for a long period of time like a sort of um, fear of rejection um i think i'm over most of that now um and in reality I'm, I'm basically just driven by what I find really interesting. Um, and, and that kind of, that's enough for, for most, for, for most things. And, and then the, the connections with people working with people that I enjoy working with, that's really important to me. And, you know, often the thing that we produce is secondary to me, like having those good working mm-hmm. relationships and us, you know, building something good together. And like, that's one of the main reasons I actually stayed in academia, you know, I was going to leave my postdoc and just go f- full into industry. And then uh, my boss was like, well, what if I made you a professor? Would you stay on? And I was like, yeah, actually, you know, I, I and it wasn't oh, the wow. title that drove me. It was the fact that I got an opportunity to keep on working with, with a group of people that I really enjoyed uh, working with. So, and then beyond that, and um, sort of on, on the other side of things, I, w- I want to make health I want to democratize health, if that makes sense. So, you know, I I, I was trained in the NHS. Um, I deplore the US medical system Um, and and also the way most functional medicine is done. Good health is really easy and it shouldn't be expensive. Mm. Um, And if that means, if it's, you know, if, if the barrier is people understanding their own bodies or understanding what they should do or understanding the tests that they get, I want to make that as easy for them to understand and as accessible as possible. Um, And so again, you go back to all the things that are going to be the best for people to create long-term optimal health. It's cheap. It's free. There's, there's there's no fancy testing, no fancy supplements required. Um, If you want to better understand your blood test, I want to build something that helps you look at it and be like, okay, I understand what this means. I, I, you know, I know what I can do now and you don't have to pay for, a fancy microbiome test you don't have to pay for a fancy genetics test because the most of what's going to be beneficial should be easy cheap and free so that's like and i want, want to be one of the people that helps make that happen it's a very noble mission and this conversation has had such a breadth and depth and it's amazing such an academic um talking about you know not only kind of the personable things um about how you manage you know, the health parameters and having this kind of goal to make everyone healthy. Um, and as well as that, you know, I've, I've had a physiological masterclass, which I'm, I'm glad um, to have had from you because, um, you know, 
you have to be taking that knowledge from the experts. But um, no, it's been amazing having you on. And before I let you go, um, where can um, listeners find you or find more about what you're doing or follow you, um, etc.? Yeah. Um, so I have the, sort of the, the basic um, up until now where people can, can go and find me has uh, most recently been nourishbalancethrive.com. So that's the company uh, that you mentioned early on. Uh, however, I will start rebuilding some of my old uh, blogs. And so I have a, a website called drragnar.com, which is D-R-R-A-G-N-A-R.com, uh, which is Ragnar is my middle name for anybody who's, who's <laughs> any, any uh, fans of the series. Uh, Vikings, it wasn't on your LinkedIn. It wasn't on your LinkedIn. That's all I'm saying. It's not, it's <laughs> not there. So I'm, I'm hoping to build that back up again. So I have a Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Ragnar. Um, I've never been on Instagram, but maybe I will be one day. So I'm, I'm basically, I'm going to start building that up again because I just want to, to be in charge of my own content. Um, and yeah. I, haven't, I haven't done that for a while. So I'm, I'm kind of going to give that another go. Um, to have that so, as well. Yeah, and so Instagram. I'm looking forward to Kim Kardashian versus <laughs> Professor Tommy Wood. <laughs> I think yeah, that good good battle on yeah, maybe, maybe how. I, I always used to say that I have um, rather than FOMO, fear of missing out. I have JOMO, joy of missing out. <laughs> on Instagram. You're so lucky. <laughs> it's, yeah, so it's just one of those things that I don't have to worry about. But you know, yeah. uh, may, maybe that will come. So, so if you go to drragnar.com now, there's all my old blogs, and it's a couple of years out of date, but hopefully that's gonna get rebooted in the next uh, few months so so um yeah definitely follow me there and and if and if people do go there and they want more from me and nothing's happened then they're very welcome there's a there's an email button they can they can poke me into life and, and i'll try and make that happen your inbox will be flooded <laughs> so um no great having you on thanks a lot as always and um obviously we'll stay in touch um absolutely thank you for listening to the always body clock podcast Thanks for listening to another episode of the Body Clock Podcast by O-Waves. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Please also remember to download the free O-Waves app on the Apple App Store. Please tell your friends and your family. It's a great tool to help you optimize your life and to effectively plan your day. Thanks as always for listening and uh, hope you join us again next time.